Now let's open our Bibles to the book of Acts, the book of Acts chapter 3. And I want to read a very familiar, but one of the most blessed and thrilling stories in the account of the happenings in the early church. The book of Acts chapter 3, verse 1 through 11. And tonight I want to speak to you on the simple subject, such as I have, such as I have. Acts chapter 3, beginning at verse 1 and reading through verse number 11. Now the Lord willing, tomorrow night I want to bring this message that I think you'll need to hear and indeed a stirring truth from the Word of God. I call it small but smart. Somebody said, you know, well, I'm not really talking about necessarily the physically small, and yet again, I may be. But the Bible talks about the small, but yet very, very smart and wise. You'll want to be here tomorrow night, and I don't think you'll forget that, that message for a long, long while. All right, in the book of Acts tonight, chapter 3 and verse number 1. Now Peter and John went up together into the temple at the hour of prayer, being the ninth hour, about 3 p.m. And a certain man, lame from his mother's womb, was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms of them that entered into the temple." Who seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple asked an alms. And Peter, fastening his eyes upon him with John, said, Look on us. And he gave heed unto them, expecting to receive something of them. Then Peter said, Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up. And immediately his feet and ankle bones received the strength. And he leaping up stood and walked and entered with them into the temple, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. And they knew that it was he which sat for alms at the beautiful gate of the temple. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at that which had happened unto him. And as the lame man which was healed held Peter and John, all the people ran together unto them in the porch that is called Solomon's greatly wondering. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we ask now you shall open our minds and our hearts to the word of truth. People have come this way to receive thy message. And I pray that the word of God shall go forth unhindered in the power and the demonstration of thy blessed spirit. Get glory to thyself for that's our purpose in being here tonight and in the coming days of this meeting that thy name shall receive honor and praise and glory. Fill us now, we pray, with thy spirit and give victory in the heart of the unsaved as well as the saved. And we'll thank you in Jesus' dear name we pray. Amen. Before us is a very beautiful and exciting picture and truth 
of the very powerful hand of God able to work in the life of those who stand in desperate need. As you begin reading this text and as I begun reading it, I was arrested immediately with the statement of verse number one. Somehow it brought a great warmth to my heart. And the word of verse 1 reads like this. Now Peter and John went up together. My, what a beautiful sight that is. Here are two men, not in opposition to each other, not now at each other's throat, but rather together they press forward in faithful obedience as they go up to the temple, the place of worship. Another thing arrested my mind and heart as I read this statement, and that is, uh, they went uh, up. Say, you know, a man always goes up in his life when he moves toward God. When you go to the house of God, you're always moving in an upward direction. When men turn from God, it is often stated in the scripture that they go down. The prodigal son went away and down from his father. Jonah, when he rebelled against the call of God, went down to Joppa. Not only that, but he went down into the sides of the ship and there fell fast asleep. It was not long until after he was thrown overboard and swallowed by the giant fish that he went down into the depths of the sea. My friend, when you begin to slip away from the house of God and refuse to comply with the command of Scripture to assemble ourselves together, then you begin to go downward in your life. I've never known in my life any man who grew, grew spiritually and grew up in Christ by staying away from the Lord's house. I encountered a man once on a street in a little town out in Mississippi, and uh, I said to him, Sir, are you a Christian? And he looked at me and he said, Well, sir, yes, I am. I said, That's wonderful. I'm glad to meet you. And I talked with him a few minutes, and I said, Where do you go to church? And then he sold like an old possum whose tail had been pulled. And I said to him, or he said to me, Well, he said, I'm a Christian, but I tell you, I don't go to church. I just don't believe in going to these churches around here. I don't find anybody in the churches who love God and who care anything about the Lord. And therefore, I am a Christian, but I do not go to church. I said, let me have your autograph. You're the strangest kind of Christian I ever met in my life. A man who calls himself saved, a man who says he loves the Lord, and yet does not come or present himself in that body of believers that are called the bride of Christ, the church of the firstborn. Now, I know it is possible for a man to be saved and not go to church, but it is not a very probable thing. It is not a very likely thing any more than it'd be for a fellow to say, oh yeah, I love the farm, but I hate farming. I like boxing, but I hate the ring. I love tennis, but I hate the court. Or, I sure like being married, but I hate to go home. That just doesn't make too good a sense, does it? And yet there are a lot of folks who say, oh yes, I'm a Christian, but they're unfaithful to the house of God. 
Say it is little wonder that such a marvelous miracle as was performed and recorded here took place when you recognize first the togetherness of the servants of God and secondly their faithfulness and obedience to the house of God. Now when you get that kind of combination together, brother, you've got something that will exert power and influence and get the job done. One of the things the devil seeks to do among born-again, Bible-believing people is to separate and to divide. But these men are together. Oh, I'm sure Peter and John didn't see everything just eye to eye, but there was a togetherness when it came to the cause of our Lord Jesus. And so Peter and John together, they go up to the temple and it was the hour of prayer. Say there's a third element in that combination of success. Not only togetherness in heart, not only together in the cause of Christ, but a going up to the house of God. But thirdly, a yieldedness to the ministry of prayer. I believe if we'd do more praying than we did cussing and criticizing, we'd see a lot more things happen in this countryside than the eye could ever envision or the heart could ever imagine. How, how conspicuously absent is the praying men and women in the average church today? We have got streamlined leaders. We have got polished and simonized kind of leadership. But listen, we need some down-to-earth, knee-bending people of God who know how to get on the backside of the church building or in the prayer closet and call upon God. And as a result, God's power manifests itself in the assembly of the Lord. And so here's a winning combination. Obedience to the Lord's word in attending the house of worship. Togetherness of spirit and a prayerful attitude of heart. Always a winning combination. But now notice what these men encounter in verse number two. And a certain man lame from his mother's womb was carried whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple which is called beautiful to ask alms of them that entered into the temple. Now watch this. Somebody cared about this fellow, did they not? Oh, their, their, their care may not have been exactly correct, but yet again they did what they knew to do and they carried the man over to the place, the house of worship. Now, I think they had a reason for doing that. There were no welfare societies in that day and age. There was no welfare payment. If a man was in this condition, all he could expect to do is just to beg alms and gifts from the people that he encountered. And so the fellow logically would assume that the most likely place where you would find people of compassion and care of heart would be up there where folks go to worship the true and the living God. Now I think that's right in that deduction, don't you? I believe certainly you'll find the most compassionate people yielded to the Lord and faithful in God's house. But yet again, there's a sad side to that story. Though the house of God is the place we ought to find compassion expressed, oft times it is just the opposite. 
Oftentimes we go to the house of God and there is a cold icicleness about the attitude of God's professed people. There is a lack of concern. There is a lack of compassion. And men and women come to the house of God Sunday after Sunday, never having prayed for one single soul, never use their telephone to contact anybody and try to get them to hear the gospel, never use their automobile to go across town and to witness to somebody and tell them that Jesus loved them, never go out of the way to try to get anybody the sweet message of the saving gospel of Christ. Oh, you would expect to find, surely, if anyone cared for the souls of men, you'd find them in the place of the house of God. And most certainly you'd expect to find them in the place that announces itself to be fundamental, to be independent, to be soul winning. But oh, listen, let me ask you this question individually. If this church depended upon you alone, how much compassion would be manifest in the church? How much prayer would be given if you were the only one who was able to give prayer? If you are the only one to win a soul, how many souls would be one to Jesus Christ? Somebody as well said, no organization. than the very lowest or weakest member, but all what power can be ours and what effectiveness can be ours if we would work in the house of God as though we were the only person interested in souls and trying to get the gospel out and trying to win sinners to Jesus. What a mighty and gathering we could experience in the average fundamental church in this country. I'm all for being fundamental, brother. And you can put my cap, put a capital F as big as the Empire State Building on that letter F when it comes fundamental in my life. But I want to tell you the tragedy is so often we have the truth, but we're as cold as an iceberg when it comes to getting it out. And we have a little concern in our hearts. God forgive us. God help us. So here someone cared. They went out of their way, I'm sure. I'm sure that many times they felt like, well, it's just too much to go after old so-and-so today. I don't feel too much like it today. But here's a man in need. Thank God this day they did not give in to their feelings. They did not give in to their tiredness. They did not give in to the monotony of carrying this lame man day after day to the place of the temple. But they continued and brought him. And what a day this was in his life. How are we to know but what the next time we bring that unsaved person to the house of God, that will be the day of days in his life when he too, like the lame man, will feel and sense the touch of Jesus in his own life. Don't give up. Don't grow weary in well-doing. Don't grow weary in inviting and urging friends to come. For surely that very next time may be the time that you'll see them come to Christ. Do you follow me? So are you following me? Nod your head like that. I'll know it's still hanging on anyhow. All right, I don't mind you nodding, but for heaven's sake, do it two ways, not just one. Huh? All right, come on with me and watch. There's somebody who cares a compassion. But watch now this man. This man is carried and brought to the temple, brought uh, because he was lame from his mother's womb. 
You know what was wrong with this fella? He had a birth defect. And I'm going to say something that's going to shock everybody in this house. So do you. Do you know that's the basic problem with all men? He has a birth defect. We say, nothing wrong with me. I've got all my hands, all my feet, my ears, eyes, nose. I'm not in any sense deformed physically. No, but what about spiritually? Man's problem is a birth defect spiritually. David said in the Psalms, In sin did my mother conceive me. I was shaped in iniquity. David was saying, Listen, there is something that has passed from mother to child and on down the very bloodline of humankind that renders him a rebel against God. That's a birth defect. Did you know the only cure for that is another birth? Jesus said, A man must be born again. For though you were born the second time in the same manner, you'd have the same defect. A rebel against God, a stranger to God, an alien to God, dead in trespasses and sin. Ah, man's birth defect then renders him as this man's birth rendered him, lame and unable to walk. You'd find an interesting study in your Bible if you'd look up the many times the word walk is used. What an interesting study when you begin to look at it in the Word of God. You will find that God's command and God's demand and God's desire for man is that he walk with him, that he walk before him, that he walk by him, that he walk in his truth, that he walk in his way, that he walk in his life. That's God's desire. But lame men can't do that. Lame men cannot walk even though God commands. And say that's what the world found. Under the law the command was walk. The command was thou shalt have no other gods before you. The command was you're not to make any graven image. Look at what Israel did. Did both of them so far. Observe to keep the uh, uh, Sabbath day. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. But how many times they broke it. Again the commandment honor thy father and mother. But how many dishonored. Again, thou shalt not commit adultery, but how often they became immoral. Thou shalt not steal, but stealing is present. What's that a picture of? It's a picture of man who is lame, unable to walk in the commands of God. And that's your trouble and mine. With this defect of birth, man is unable to walk pleasing in the sight of a holy God. But listen, there is a way whereby men can walk. And that is not under his own strength or his own power, but by the infusion of a new power. And that power is in the person of Jesus Christ. Ah, thus, when a man comes and receives Christ, he is looked upon as holy, whereas before he's unholy. In the sight of God, he is unfit, but now in Christ he is fit. And out of Christ, unworthy, in Christ he is worthy. Out of Christ, he is not acceptable, but in Christ. He is accepted in the sight of God. And so Christ is our righteousness. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 30. He has made unto us wisdom. He has made unto us righteousness. He has made unto us sanctification or holiness. He is our everything. And this poor man physically like we spiritually unable to walk in the ways of God. The Lord said to Abraham of old in chapter 17 of Genesis verse 1. Walk before me and be thou perfect. But Abraham couldn't keep that. He endeavored to do so. There has to be an answer that will come outside of yourself and myself if we're to walk well-pleasing in the sight of God. Do you follow me?
Now, just if you do, some of you look like a calf licking a new barn door tonight. Huh? Are you still with me? All right. Don't get glassy-eyed. That frightens me. You ever seen a glassy-eyed Jersey bull? I was in the stockyard not long ago when a foal farmer backed up a big old truck into the cattle chute. And out come an old Jersey bull, meanest looking critter I've ever looked at in my life. Boy, his eyes is glassy. They are spread as wide as they could get. And he starts slinging that head and snorting and blowing. And listen, you didn't have to tell me twice what I need to do. Out of just natural instinct, I climbed the wall. I got up out of there and down through the chute he came, a slinging his head and a snort. Every time I see somebody in the congregation get glassy-eyed, I start looking for a wall to climb somewhere. But here this man was carried, but he is lame, couldn't walk. How many people have to be carried along in their so-called professed Christian life? But listen, if you ever become a child of God, I'm going to tell you something. You'll have a dynamic, a powerful living that you have never known before. Instead of having to be carried, and listen... A lot of folks are like chameleons. You know what a chameleon is? Little lizard turns brown, green, depending on what color of thing it's on. Uh, if it's on a green leaf, turn green. On a brown roof, turn brown. You know there are a lot of people like that. Whatever crowd they're with, they're okay. They have to be, they're carried along with the crowd. But listen, when a man becomes alive in Jesus Christ, there is an inner dynamic, there is a strength within him that he stands for right and for God, regardless of the trend. And this man was unable to stand. He was laid. And that's trouble a lot of folks. That's the reason they can be a Christian on Sunday, but be as mean as a devil Monday through Saturday. Depends on the crowd you're with. But this man, unable to stand by himself. Okay, follow me. And they carried him whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called beautiful, to ask alms of them that came. The beautiful gate is the temple in the temple of Herod. It was a gleaming brass gate, polished, 80 feet high and 65 feet wide. It took a total of 22 men to open those gates. Solid, beautiful brass. And when the sun would rise up and begin to gleam its first glint of morning sun, it would reflect on that brilliant door and people would stand in awe at the beauty of that beautiful gate. And wait a minute, beauty is not what a man lame from his mother's womb needed. And I'm going to tell you something else. Beauty is not what the blighted soul of man by his sin needs. Somebody comes out of a church service every once in a while, and I had somebody say the other day, had gone to a very formalistic church. They had all the fourfold amens and the nuke didymus and whatever else they may do in there and stand-ups and sit-downs and spiritual religious calisthenics. And so this woman said to me, oh, we had such a beautiful service. Kind of made, made me want to gag just a little. We just had such a beautiful service. The choir is so beautiful. The pastor is so beautiful. I've never seen a pretty pastor in my life. <laughs> and yet talking about, oh, how beautiful. Listen, I want to tell you something. Men condemned to hell are not interested in beauty. A man who's starving to death needs bread, not beauty. A man condemned to die in a gas chamber, he's not interested in beautiful robes and formal attire. What he's wanting is a liberation from his death sentence. And what this world needs is not beauty, 
but the Bible. The Word of God. That's what we need. God forbid that we ever think we could meet the spiritual hunger of being by a beautiful little program and a beautifully presented program. Oh, listen. God's Word is the thing men need today. The person of Christ. The preciousness of His Word. Well, the man comes, sits before a beautiful gate. How long this had gone on, I don't know. But regardless of how long it had gone on, it's still in the same condition it had always been. I'm talking to somebody right here in this building. You've gone to church all your life. And you're still in the same sad, sinful condition you've always been. You've sat in the church pew Sunday after Sunday. You do the best you can. You recite the, 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 the song. You recite the scripture. You recite the prayer. But let me tell you something. Just a formal presentation of a man's soul is not the thing that he needs. It is not just being carried into a church house. Not just being carried into religion. Not just getting your name on the church book. Or being baptized in the baptistry. That's not the answer. It wasn't the answer in this man's life. He sat at that beautiful gate, but died in his sin, would have died in his sin had Simon, Peter, and John not brought him the good news of the Christ. Now watch. He sat at the beautiful gate, and, and seeing verse 3, Peter and John about to go into the temple, asking alms. I want to remind you people see you too. They watch you. I wonder where they see you go on Sunday morning. Sunday night, Wednesday night. You make sure your neighbors see where you're headed if you're a child of God. I'm afraid a lot of professed people on the Lord's day, instead of being in the house of God, the neighbors see them heading out to the lake somewhere or going to the mountains or to go visit grandma and grandpa instead of being faithful in the house of God. Now listen, this man was influenced by Peter and John because first of all, they were there, they were going into the temple and the man saw them and began to ask for some alms, for a gift. Verse five said, or verse four, and Peter fastening his eyes upon him with John said, look on us. And Peter fastening his eyes saying, Simon Peter, wouldn't it be a little more comfortable if you didn't look? If you just refuse to think about his condition, wouldn't you feel a little better? It's awfully discomforting to recognize men in such condition. Do you know that's the attitude of many a child of God in this day? He'd rather not look too long at his neighbor who's lost and realize that without Christ, he's going to die and go to hell. It's more comfortable just to ignore him. But I dare you to look on your loved ones who are lost. I dare you to look at your children and realize unless they trust Jesus Christ, they'll die and go to hell too when they come to the age of understanding their need of Christ. I dare you to look on mother and dad and son and daughter, friend and neighbor, husband and wife, whoever they may be. I dare you to look on them as Peter looked upon this man, fastening his eyes upon him. He looked. But oh, so sad is the truth that we, like a Levi and a publican, when we encounter those who are wounded by sin as the Samaritan, in the story of the Good Samaritan, the man was wounded by the robbers and left to die in his own, in his own blood. Ah, oh, the priest, the Levite looked on the other side. They walked by on the other side. But one man cared enough to look and to be made a little uncomfortable and to have a burden and broken heart and do something to help him. 
Peter fastened his eyes on him. Watch what he said. Look on us. You know, there are a lot of Christians who live such shabby lives, they're embarrassed to say that to the world. Can you look around you in the world of the lost and say, look at me? Well, you said that'd be egotistical, wouldn't it? No. Paul was able to say, you be followers of me, even as I am a follower of Christ. Paul's example was clear and crystal before others, and yet unashamed was Simon Peter in the same sense as he looked at the man and said, look, look on us. Do you know the only way your world will see Christ is in you? And if they do not see him in us, then the gospel is hid to those that are lost. Again, Simon Peter said, look on us. And verse 5 said, he gave heed unto them, expected to receive something of them. Notice, he expected something. But the man didn't need something. He needed someone. And the world looks for something today. They look for some gimmick to give them peace and pleasure in their heart. They look for something out in the world. If I can get a new car, if I can move into a new home, if I can get a better paying job, a bigger salary, if I own a little more property, if I have a little more recognition, if I feel that I'm appreciated more, this will answer the need in my life. Not so. The need of man is not met in something, but in someone. And now the man, though thinking in his blinded state that that's all he needed, just another offering, a penny, a shekel, some kind of gift. But listen, neighbor, when you have the giver, you don't have to worry about the gifts. When you have Christ as your own Lord and Savior, he's the one who, from whom all spiritual blessings flow. He is the answer. And so they looked at, he looked at Simon Peter and thinking, well, I'll... I'll get something. Then Peter said, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee. In the name of Jesus, the Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. My, what a statement. Now wait. Simon Peter says to the man, such as I have, I give to thee. I don't have any silver and gold. Thomas Aquinas once went to the Pope in the early days of Rome. And the Pope opened the treasures of the of the of the uh, of the, uh, of, the, uh, the, the of Rome and showed him all the silver that people had sent in and gave to the church. And the Pope said to Thomas Aquinas, No longer can the church say, Silver and gold have I none. And Thomas Aquinas said, and neither can the church say, in the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. Money, yes, but no power. No strength to deliver men from the grip of sin. What a sad state to be in. But here Peter said, I don't have any silver and gold, but such as I have, I give it to you. Now what did he have? He has the same thing, had the same thing you have if you're a born-again Christian. First of all, what can he offer this man? He can offer him a foundation for his life, and that we call faith. He presented to him the object, the person of faith. Not just faith in itself. In other words, he didn't just say to the man, okay, have faith, 
Have faith. Do you know that's what the modernistic world says? All you need to do to get to heaven and be a Christian is to have faith. But I ask, faith in what? Faith in whom? The object of faith is more important than even faith itself. Sam Jones said, a man's faith is no stronger than the object that he places it in. Take a man down to the ocean who wants to go over to Europe for a visit. He says to himself, I'm going to Europe, and he unfolds a big giant cardboard box, shoves it out into the water, and then jumps in it and says, I'm going to Europe. Well, his faith may be admirable, but his faith is no stronger than the object he's placed it in. He may start to Europe, but that's about all. He'll go out for a few feet and down he'll go. And let me tell you something. Yet many a man has placed his faith in the cardboard box of his religion, of his morality, of his baptism, of his church membership, and his faith is no stronger than that object. But here's a man who comes down and says, I'm going to Europe. He gets on the Queen Mary or whatever ocean liners they have now, steel and tried and proven. And you would say that fellow will get there. In all likelihood he would. Now wait, Queen Mary could sink. But when you place your faith in the never dying, all powerful son of God, you can't do anything but win. For the Lord Jesus, certainly his promise is assured and he's not lost a one as he declared to the Father in the 15th or 17th chapter of the book of John. Ah, oh, faith then becomes wonderful when it's in the right object. And Simon Peter didn't just say to him, have faith, mister. But he said, such as I have in the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. It was faith exemplified and expressed in the Son of God. It was not faith in Simon Peter. It was not faith in the temple, but faith in Christ. The Philippian jailer who came running and crying to Paul and Silas, men and sirs, what must I do to be saved? Their reply was not believe, man, believe. Oh, no, but the message was believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. It is faith in the right object. And so what do you have to offer to men? You have to offer them faith, which is a foundation. As you present the word of God to men, it is the word of God that produces faith. For faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. You follow me? So then, it is a promise and a giving of faith. But you know the reason a lot of folks can't give any? They don't have any to give. You can't give something you don't have. And many a person is unable to give Christ to others, for in the first place, he has him not himself. I was out in Mississippi years ago, and one morning I challenged the people in this particular church to go out that day and the next day and whether you know how to approach a person and know step one, two, three on how to win souls, I want you to do one thing. Just go find somebody and tell them your own experience of being saved. The folks went out. The next service, they came back. 
And a woman after the service called me over and after many wonderful glowing testimonies of people who had been saved and what joy it was even on the part of those who didn't have somebody saved just to tell others what Christ had done. They were sharing Christ. And this one woman, Mrs. Shook, called me over the side and said, Preacher, I want to talk to you a minute. I could tell she was very disturbed. I went over to the side and she began to weep and said, Preacher, you know you told us to go out and tell people about being saved. I said, Yes. She said, as I walked out of the church house this morning and began to think about, what would I tell somebody? All I could tell them is that I've gone to church all of my life. I've tried to be a good woman, but to tell them of ever an encounter or ever having trusted Christ, I don't have that. But she said, I want Jesus to be my Savior now. I bowed with her and she invited Christ. Now listen, from that day until her death, she had something to tell people. She had someone to give to them. She had Christ to present. Ah, what do you have? Do you have Christ you can give to others? Not only such as I have is the foundation or faith, but Simon Peter had a future to offer to this man. The past of his life was dismal and drab, lame, had to be carried around everywhere he went, no, not able to help himself at the mercy of people. And now Simon Peter is offering him indeed a future, a direction in life. In the name of Jesus, he said, rise up and walk. What a future. It is a diametric change. And that's what happens when you get saved. It's a complete turnabout. It's an about face. It's a direct reversal of your pattern of life. It's turning from the pleasure of sin to the well-pleasing of Christ. There has come within a desire not to please self as has been, but a future with a desire to please God and to find his blessing in heaven through eternity. What a future. There are many people, maybe somebody you right here in this building tonight, you'd have to say, well, I don't see much in the future for me. There's not much hope out there for me. If I should die tonight, I don't know I'd go to heaven. If I were to die, if my heart were stopped being, listen, you could. In a split second of time, your heart could arrest you. And in three and a half minutes, you'd be physically dead. But let me tell you something. There is a future even beyond the dark cloud of death itself for the person who knows Christ. And though you have no future of bright hope, if you're unsaved, the only future you have is dismal. It is dark. It is hell. It is separation from God. It is separation from the loved ones who are saved forever and ever. But Simon Peter, Peter had a future. And he offered that future to this man. There are many in this country who are despairing. Young men and women so distressed and frustrated and confused and distraught in life. They take their pills. They inject the needle into their veins. They live it up in wild parties. They try to drink their sorrow and the confusion away. But only add more to it. Listen, you have a future to offer men and women. A future of eternal blessing. A future even on this earth of walking down life's pathway knowing every sin you've ever committed is forgiven. That God will never dig it up and remind you of it again. 
He'll never rattle the skeletons out of the closets of the past in their face. What a future. What a prospect. What a beautiful ray of hope for the man or woman who in his sin has no hope. It's like offering a pardon to a prisoner on death row. All you have to do is take it and the future is yours. Not only did he have a future to offer him, but he had a fortune to give him. Now he didn't have any money. Silver and gold, he was bound to have been a Baptist preacher, an independent Baptist preacher at that. But here he said, I, I don't have any silver and gold, but I have a fortune to offer you, sir. I not only have the gold, but the gold mine itself. I have not gifts to give you, but the giver I offer to you. I offer you the very secret and the source, the very spring, the very heart of all that your heart seeks. And I offer it to you in Jesus Christ. Paul said, we know him, that though he was rich, yet he became poor, that we through his poverty might be rich. What a rich man I am in spiritual values. And listen, what is, what is material wealth? If there's no peace in the heart, what is material wealth if there is no joy, no future, no knowledge of sins forgiven? Listen, you read of millionaires over and again blowing their brains out. You read of Hollywood actors and actresses, famous, well-known, but so despairing of life, taking overdose of drugs, overdose sleeping pills, blowing their brains out, full of despair. I tell you, things again is not the answer. But the fortune you seek is in the Son of God, and that fortune will never pass away. Let me tell you this. If I had a million dollars, and I said, there's somebody here tonight need physically, I'm going to give you half of it. You know what that would mean? That would mean I'd have half as much as I had before I gave you half. What if I said I'm going to give you the million dollars that I have? If I gave that, that's all the money I had. Listen, I would be impoverished. I'd have to go on welfare tomorrow. I'd have to come to your door and beg. Why? I've given what I had away. But it's not like that with Christ. The more you give away, the more there is to give away. It's like the meal and the barrel of the widow that Elijah came to. And when she dipped it out and fed him that last meal, that meal barrel never went dry. The oil was always there. A man is never impoverished by giving what he has in Christ to others. It only increases the richness of his own life. And then finally, Simon Peter had forgiveness to offer this man. Such as I have, well, did Simon Peter know the forgiveness of Jesus? Time and again he had known it. Time and again he recognized himself to be a vile sinner. Once when Jesus came to those disciples on the sea and Simon Peter recognized him, he cried, I'm, an un I'm a sinful man, depart from me. And he jumped in. Ah, oh, but Christ can give forgiveness. And you have that to give to men and women. I'm not saying you forgive them. But just as you have been forgiven and know that he's cleansed from every sin, you can say to the world, I, such as I have, I give to you. And Jesus Christ will forgive you of whatever sin may have crossed your life and you may have ever been guilty of. He's willing to forgive you. Listen to this. 
if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Once a dear lady called me and said, Preacher, I'd like for you to come. She was very disturbed and emotionally just upset. She said, I'd like to ask you a very important question. And I said, fine, I'll be glad to come. My wife and I will be there as soon as possible. My wife and I drove to this dear lady's home and we sat down there. And I said a few words to this very disturbed woman. And then I said, what do you want to tell me or ask me? And she began to sob openly. And for a while, we just sat listening to a brokenhearted woman cry. And then she said, Preacher, before I can ask you the question I wanted to ask, I must tell you this story. And she began to unfold the story of her life. I tell you, frankly, I was embarrassed that my wife had to hear the ugly confessions of a life of sin that she heard. I've never heard such sordid deals in life and sin. And finally, after weeping her way through the story of her life, she looked at me and said, Preacher, here's my question. Can God forgive a sinner like me? And then, like Simon Peter, I was glad to say, such as I have, I give to you. He forgave me. He'll forgive you. And if you'll bring your sins to Christ, he'll cleanse you. Paul, before he became known as Paul, was Saul of Tarsus, a murderous, wicked, hateful, despicable man. But Jesus even looked Saul up and arrested him on the way to Damascus and saved him. The Son of God cares enough about you to look you up. And he seeks to save you and forgive you. I've ever seen you say, Preacher, you wouldn't say what you said if you really knew my life. Maybe I wouldn't. But God knows you and he still said it. That he'll forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Foundation that's indestructible. Not only do I offer you what I have as faith in Christ, but I offer you a future. A future that's as bright as the morning sun. A life before you that you can live with joy and happiness and fullness of purpose. I offer you a fortune. The fortune that is never depleted. The Son of God who will always abide. And I offer you forgiveness. For I've had that. Sinful though I am, I stand tonight forgiven by reason of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. For the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. Such as I have, I give to you and I'll offer it to you in that person of the Son of God. I offer it not to you in this church, nor in me, but in Christ. And if you'll take him tonight, you can leave this house with the joy that this man who was healed had. He let, went into the temple leaping and praising God. What a disturbance that must have been in that formal temple. Leaping, praising God. Together he was with Peter and John. And that's where you ought to be when you trust Christ. Together with God's people. With God's people. In God's church. In that fellowship of the people of God. Ah, oh, such as I have, I give to you. Let's bow our heads for prayer.
With every head bowed and eye closed, you've been very kind and patient and listening. And tonight, I'm going to ask you in this final moment that you'll say an eternal yes to the Savior. You've understood your need. Unable to keep the law, the commands of God. Unable to walk well-pleasing before Him, sin on top of sin. If true, you need a Savior. If he, there is sin, He'll forgive. If there's cleansing needed, he'll cleanse. And he'll do it right now if you'll only ask him into your heart. He stands waiting. He only waits for you to open the door. Just pull the latch string and ask him, Lord Jesus, come in, save me. And he'll do it. Let's stand to our feet, please. Every head bowed, eye closed. I want us to sing tonight softly and tenderly. Jesus is calling, calling for you and me. See on the portals, he's waiting and watching, watching for you and me. Come home, come home. Ye who are weary, come home. Oh, that you'll do it. Heavenly Father, there are people verily here tonight who need Jesus. We believe people have come this way hungry in their hearts. We offer them not the frailty of man, but the very power of Jesus Christ, who alone can transform their life as he has transformed the lives of myriad throngs in ages past and even thousands in this modern day. Lord, there is hope and we offer it to men in Christ. May these come and say yes to the Lamb of God, receiving him as their Savior. And we'll thank you for Jesus' sake. Keep your heads bowed for a moment. While we sing the first stanza of the song, you know it enough by heart to sing it. And while prayerfully you remain bowed in this first stanza, I want to ask you tonight, if you do not know you've trusted Christ, you've never received him as your Savior, I want you to leave your seat quickly and walk down this aisle. Come give Pastor Bill your hand and say with that, I'm coming to receive Christ right now. No longer will I go into a dark future. I trust Jesus. With all of my heart, you'll do it tonight as we sing together the first stanza. Quickly, come while we sing. So